our economy would start to slow and we would have problems. And it's telling me now that Germany is getting ready to take the biggest dive, especially in the next eight years. And everybody thinks Germany is going to hold up Europe. They have the worst demographics I've ever seen uh, in, in recent decades, even worse than Japan's in the 90s. Uh, and, and again, everybody thinks, well, Germany's going to do well. We're worried about Southern Europe. Well, Southern Europe has terrible demographics, too. That's why they're in trouble. But more and more countries around the world, that's why I named the recent book The Demographic Cliff. This baby boom peaked in Japan in the late 80s peaked in the U.S. Uh, in 2007, right on cue from our predictions 20-some years ago, and it's going to peak in more and more countries in Europe and then in South Korea and other uh, Asian economies, and it's already slowing down uh, in China. Uh, governments are going to have to uh, start uh, sending people money in the mail if they want the economy to grow because the demographic trends are going to keep going against them. And, and so we just warn people, look, you know, I don't like this, but but uh, people should be we've got another bubble created by the government and stocks this is a very good time especially probably in the next several weeks to be getting out of stocks protecting your money protecting your gains as in especially in real estate after it's bounced if you have any excess real estate you don't really really need long term protect your capital and wait for guess what another crash and you know i i go on you know tv and shows and say this and people say oh, you're crazy you're extreme i'm saying the dow could go to seventeen thousand, and then a couple of years from now be six thousand and i'm saying well, what's so extreme about that we just saw it went from fourteen thousand something down to six thousand something a couple of years ago you know 2008 and 9 and it only took a year and a half and then before that we had the tech wreck and we've seen and then before that we had the 87 crash 40 percent in two weeks, you know, uh, what what is crazy about seeing that we're in a bubble economy and that bubbles don't correct, they burst when they finally go down? That's that's what I'm looking at. And bubbles are not understood by people because they only we only get a bubble economy once in a human lifetime, like 1914 to 1929. That was the last bubble economy. And guess what? It was followed by the biggest stock crash in history and a Great Depression, which comes, depressions come from massive deleveraging of debt and deleveraging of financial bubbles. When when prices of real estate and stocks and commodities fall, people lose wealth. Wealth just disappears. Loans go bad. And then banks and, and money disappears, and these loans have to be restructured or written off. That is That, that causes deflation, deleveraging, and it is the most difficult phase in the economy. I call it the winter season, but it's also the most opportune for the businesses that hunker down and gain massive market share against their competitors. And it's the most opportune for long-term investors, people who have the liquidity and money and protect their capital and can buy real estate when it crashes, can buy stocks when they crash, get it. <clears throat> You know, it's like the sale of a lifetime on financial assets. So there's huge opportunities from my point of view. The problem is most people aren't looking at demographics. They're not looking at clear cycles that repeat. And people are believing, which is, which is unbelievable to me, that people are believing that governments can just keep printing money year after year, artificial stimulus, and actually do something to turn around our economy long term. All they're doing is keeping a bubble going, creating more debt, creating more extremes that our economy going to have to rebalance out later because the one thing our economy knows how to do just like our bodies when, when we get sick or something or, or eat something bad they know how to rebalance themselves well our economy tried to do that in 2008 and 9 and government say no we're not going to stand for it so we're going to pretend like nothing's wrong and we're just, just going to print money until we grow again ain't gonna happen okay hang on oh my gosh you're so fast 
there's there's I had so many comments like, you know, 20 minutes ago. You're you're great. So, you mentioned something about the last bubble was early in the 1914s. Wasn't the tech bubble a bubble? Wasn't the real estate Absolutely. 2000, another bubble? and We've seen nothing but bubble after bubble, and it's global now instead of, you know, just focusing a few leading companies. We've got bubbles in real estate in China and in Mumbai, India, all major cities, the coastal cities that have had strong demographic growth and limited supply of land have bubbled. Now, Dallas didn't bubble that much. You know, a lot of cities in the United States didn't bubble uh, and in certain parts of the world, but these coastal cities everywhere. I was just in Australia for three and a half weeks. Unbelievable bubble in Melbourne. In Sydney. I didn't meet one person on a normal 50, 60, 80,000 salary that could afford a condo in downtown Sydney. You know, so yes, the tech bubble was was incredible. It was bigger than the Roaring Twenties bubble in automotive stocks and, and and tech stocks. Actually, I, I did had a chart years ago, Teresa, that showed on an 80-year lag. And that's a human lifetime, and that's our longer-term economic cycle, four seasons. Intel and General Motors, two leading stocks in the leading tech areas, uh, almost tracked each other identically 80 years later. Wow. So, yes, all tech bubble, commodity bubble, gold bubble. Uh, all of these bubbles are bursting, and when they all burst, things are going to get back down to reality, and things are going to be more affordable, uh, and, and housing is going to be more affordable for the next generation. It's going to be a good thing, but it is painful when people suddenly lose wealth who own these financial assets, and when banks have to deal, especially with the real estate downturn and burst, and, and loans going bad, a lot of banks are going to be in trouble. They were in trouble in 2008 and 9 and would have melted down if the government hadn't just printed money and shoved it down their throat and said, here, this will keep you going. Trillions of quantitative easing. That money basically went in the banks. They covered their reserves. We built our reserves and then invested it often at high leverage. They're making money off of speculation now instead of lending money. How can that be good? Well, we got a casino economy, financial system. There are those that are saying that today's real estate recovery really is not a bubble because lending requirements are so uh, they're more strict than they were in the 90s and the 2000s. Oh, like Austin, yeah, that you know, is true, and that's, that's why everyday households aren't buying the homes. Guess who's buying them? BlackRock. Speculators. Over 50% of the sales are for cash. These are speculators and investors. These are not everyday the, families buying They're big-time investors. They're not the, the little yeah. Joe Smith well, and, and local. I know a lot of people. I've got friends that just go buy a home cheap and foreclosure, fix it up, and flip it in nine months. So it's individual investors, too. But it's speculation, and the speculation is made possible by record low short-term and long-term rates that are pushed down artificially by quantitative easing in the Fed. This whole thing is an artificial recovery. Mark my words on this. This real estate recovery will not last. I don't think it will last this year. Home prices will start to go back down. When bubbles burst and the housing, this was the biggest housing bubble and real estate bubble in modern history, and it was global in many, many countries and in major cities. And when bubbles peak, and I've studied every bubble you can possibly study in history, 90-some percent of them burst back to where the bubble started or lower. And for housing to go back to pre-bubble levels, and I, the bubble started in January of 2000, just as tech stocks collapsed, everybody rushed into speculating in real estate, um, we'd have to go down 55% from the top 
just to erase that bubble, just back to early 2000, and a bubble just, just happened from early 2000 to early 2006, six years, the Japanese real estate bubble. 86 to 91, also six years, and then collapsed 60%. And 22 years later, and people aren't aware of this, and people tell me this isn't a bubble, and bubbles don't burst, and real estate can't go down. Japan's real estate is still down 60%. 23 years later, never bounced. Interesting. Bubbles burst. So I'm in Austin, Texas. Right now, everyone's moving to Texas, right? Everyone's moving to Austin, Austin, right? So is that a bubble? Do you define that as a bubble? In general, Texas is not not that bubbly because I I always tell people as a joke, you know, the difference between Miami, where I lived for years, and Dallas, where my company had their office for years, uh, Miami's got oceans and swamps on each side of it, very, very limited land for development. Everything goes straight up and prices go straight up. Dallas and most of Texas just flat. and It's so flat that they say in Dallas you can watch your dog run away all day. You know, sort of thing, you know. It's just, you know, endless land for development. There's no limitations to go out and develop more suburban developments down the road. So how could prices bubble up? So Texas prices didn't fall much when when Miami went down 58%. Dallas went down, I don't know, 12%. Now, Austin downtown is a bubble. Austin downtown, last time I was there, and I love Austin, and I go there at least once a year just to eat straight for four or five days. Austin downtown, condos going for 900 a square foot, and I had a, a guy who does uh, renovate houses here in Tampa. He was down there looking there, and, and, and the neighborhoods right around downtown, the nice ones, six to $800 a square foot. I the know, best neighborhoods insane. in Tampa right near downtown are $300 a square foot. It's insane. The bubble. I, I grew up in Miami. I have family in Miami. So I know the recovery right now, or they call it a recovery in Miami, right? Real estate is booming again. But here in Austin. Well, it, it is selectively. We know we're, we're, uh, I lived in Miami for several years. My wife grew up there. We know it very well. Um, south, the, the hip area, South Beach, south Beach and downtown Miami are higher than ever. It's an even bigger bubble than last time. But if you go out in the broader suburbs, no, it, it, it hasn't recovered uh, nearly as much. But, but that bubble will burst again. Guess who's buying condos in Miami? Brazilian drug dealers with bags of cash. Right. That's not a trend. And Austin downtown, you think, is also a bubble. Where? Austin Austin downtown. downtown, You know, that whatever it is, one square mile or so, even up by the university, the best neighborhoods, very close to downtown. I remember when I was there, I also looked up a house that was my style of house to the the south. I forgot the neighborhood. Maybe 15, 20 minutes out of downtown. I looked at that, a million dollar home, you know, 6,000 square feet. I'm like, oh, that's not a, that's fine. That's okay. Well, it's not a million dollars anymore. Yeah. Well, no, no, I was just there eight eight or nine months ago. Really? I found a home that did not see, I mean, a little overpriced, but I I, I say, now this home, 20 minutes out, um, does not seem like it's in a bubble. But Mm -hmm. downtown, I I was shocked to see that the downtown condos in Austin were pricing at about the same as in South Beach in Miami. And And in Miami, at least you have the beach. Not that there's anything wrong with Austin, but you've got the beach, you've got that. Exactly. Right. You, you've got an international community. You've got tons of money and tons of culture. And I love Austin. Don't get me wrong. But there's not a beach view. There's not. Not a beach view. But you, you have a lot of restaurants within a couple square miles, more, more than any place, I think, I know. New York City. You could eat all day <laughs> long here. How much does the Elliott Wave theory play into your predictions? 
Well, you know, I, I know Robert Prechter that innovated that a long time ago, and he was one of the first people's books that I read back in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was getting into cycles and economic research. And uh, it, I mean, he has changed the language of financial analysis. Everybody uses Elliott Wave labeling, but I see it as a secondary tool. He sees it as the primary way, but to me, it's a pattern, and that pattern can change, and it can go, you know, in these waves or more waves or less waves and all this sort of stuff. What I do is I use it. I have my demographic and other cycles that I project in the future, and then I use Elliott wave kind of patterns to better anticipate where you might get a correction and how big it'll be or where where you might get some peaks, you know, a third wave peak or a fifth wave peak and, and that sort of thing. So I, I use it a lot. And in and, and, and my newsletters, when I pull up a chart and I say, well, here's what's happening here, I almost always put Elliott wave labeling on it. So, I mean, because people, I've had to teach people on my newsletter how to understand it. But, you know, if I say, oh, this is an A wave now, well, anybody with a peripheral understanding knows, oh, that, that means it's your first major correction, but it's probably not your last major correction, which is a C wave down after a B wave bounce. So I, Prechter has done huge innovation from my point of view, but he sees it as the social wave. I see it as a pattern um, and, and, and kind of a probabilistic thing. Uh, demographics is deterministic. People you know, have sex. Nine months later, a baby pops out. 46 years later, they're spending the most money in their life. End of story. It, it's cause and effect. It's not not just a pattern. It's not it's not variable. It may, it's not like you know it, it could be something different. No, that's exactly what happens. Elliott wave is not like that. It can you can look like you're in a fifth wave, and then you have a correction, and it can subdivide, and that fifth wave can extend years. Right, and you, and you don't so you never know where you are really until. After yeah, you know, you know afterwards. That's right. the problem. Elliott wave, you know, is very easy to see afterwards. Oh, yeah, that was a fifth wave <laughs> peak with these subdivisions. Uh, believe me, I do this all the time. You're brilliant after the fact. It's before the yeah. fact that you really don't know. I how, use how, it. Uh -huh. I tell people there's a difference. You know, short-term trends are what's hard to predict. Long-term is a piece of cake from the cycles I study because people are so predictable, and there are just certain cycles. Commodities peak every 30 years like a clock. And people think commodity price is going to keep going up. We've been saying for years, they are going down in the next decade. And that's what's hurting emerging countries and, and things like that. But the short term is probabilistic. Depending on what news breaks or political events or things or a tsunami in Japan, things that I just can't predict, you know, but, but, it, but patterns like the Elliott Wave and some other indicators help you make a better guess about whether the market's going to be more up next year or down or in the next few months. But it is always a guess, and anybody that tells you otherwise doesn't know what they're doing. I tell people, in the short term, I try to be right 60 to 70 percent. That's an absolute home run. In the long term, I expect within some pretty decent parameters to be right 90 to 100 percent. So you're predicting deflation instead of inflation. You're predicting prices to go down instead of what so many economists are calling inflation. Yeah, and here's a real simple analogy. If you knew you were in fall, it was September, October, what would you be prediction for temperatures uh, as you go into winter? Would they go up or would they go down? Go down. They go down. Our economy has a spring boom like 1942 to 68, driven by the last generation for the baby boom, and then a summer bust with high inflation from the expensive incorporation of young, crazy baby boomers into the workforce and falling economy from the last generation. That was summer, rising inflation like rising temperatures. We had a fall bubble boom 
just like in the early 1900s and roaring 20s with the baby boom spending cycle, which was massive, and computers finally went mainstream. We've had the computer since 1946, ENIAC. It didn't become personal, small, usable, mainstream until the 80s, and then after that you got the Internet, then you got broadband, and, and now we've got tablets and iPhones and all this stuff, smartphones. It went mainstream. That's what happens in every fall bubble boom falling temperatures falling inflation rates and then when that bubble burst and the debt has to deleverage and the financial assets have to deleverage that causes falling prices deflation you never go from fall back to summer and the gold bugs are saying with all this money printing we're going to go back to summer and have hyperinflation and i'm like not a chance in Hades, not going to happen. Governments are printing money at unprecedented rates, trillions and trillions of dollars a year around the world, just to keep inflation at zero to two percent and from falling into deflation. They're printing money to fight deflation. Therefore, the trend is deflation. And if and when, and I say not if, but when, these government policies fail, because you can't create something for nothing, at least in my humble experience in life, when this fails, you're going going to see deflation. And when you see deflation, gold's going to go back in the hundreds instead of the thousands. Um, stocks are going to fall more. The biggest stock crashes in history have come in deflationary depressions like 1930 to 33. Stocks fell 89% more than any crash in the 70s uh, or, or any crash we've seen thus far. And we've seen some big ones. So, so winter is an inevitability. It follows fall. And then when you clear the decks, and I call it debt detox and financial detox in winter, that clears the decks, brings prices down again, rebalances everything. Major innovations happen from those challenges. And then you go into a spring boom with the next generation, and that's the echo boom. This is, we, can, we can show this 80-year model. We can time the booms and busts with demographics. We can even time inflation rising and falling with demographics because young people are costly and inflationary. Old people downsize everything and then die, and they're deflationary. So we can predict this cycle 80 years over the rest of your lifetime and be roughly accurate around when booms are going to bust. We called the 2007 top all the way back in 1989 in my first book, and I didn't expect to be that close. I just expected to be within a year or two. Hit right on late 2007, right when the baby boomers, the peak numbers born in 1961, were at the peak of their spending cycle 46 years later. And then everything started going down, and governments have been printing money ever since in denial, thinking that we just have a short-term financial crisis that needs to be cured and not realizing we have a long-term demographic downturn, and we have the greatest debt bubble in history, and debt bubbles have to deleverage or you go into a coma economy, as Japan has been. Japan should have recovered in 2003 from their long downturn, and they never really did because they never deleveraged their debt, so they're carrying hundreds of pounds on the backs of consumers and businesses because they didn't want to let some damn stupid banks go under and have loans fail. If those loans had failed, consumers and businesses would have seen their loans written down and they'd have much stronger cash flow. But now they're, they're, they're trying to run again with 300 pounds on their back and you can't run with 300 pounds on your back. All you can do is walk at best. And, and we're going into the same comb economy, an endless stimulus just to create 2% growth on average. And all we're doing is raising our debt instead of deleveraging it. And all we're doing is, is, is encouraging 
banks and hedge funds and investors to chase high yields and get into bubbles that are going to burst, and we're encouraging the most sophisticated investors and funds to lever up 30 to 50 to 1 with near zero interest rates. This is, this is insanity. Mary, it will not succeed. I'm going to stop you right there. We're going to take a quick break. This is the fastest 20-something minutes in Living Wealthy Radio history. You're so interesting. Our guest today is economist Harry Dent. He is using the science of demographics to predict a major downturn in everything. You will want to stay tuned through the break and find out why Wall Street pundits and many economists have it wrong. Living Wealthy Radio. Visit Teresa's team online at livingwealthyradio.com, 1-800-382-0830 now. Call 1-800-382-0830. Welcome back, Austin, to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. Dependence on Wall Street would love for you to believe that we are on our way to an economic recovery, but... Demographics show otherwise, according to our guest today, Harry Dent, who is speaking on why may be the worst time to be shoveling money into the markets. So, Harry, we've been talking about Wall Street, the tech bubble, Wall Street bubble, real estate bubble, gold and silver bubble. You know, tons of people are still investing, especially like gold and silver. We see all these commercials all the time. Why are you thinking that even gold and silver, I mean, even if if the economy was to collapse, isn't that just a good place to park money because it's real as opposed to having it in fiat currency? Uh, It was in the 1970s. It is not. That's the summer season. What is the summer season? Rising inflation. Um, in a difficult economy. The winter season is a even more difficult, even slower economy with falling prices. Gold is an inflation hedge. That's why it was one of the very best investments in the difficult period, you know, from 1968 to 82 when stocks were down and bonds were down and most and a lot of investments were failing. As we go from a bubble burst, you're going to see as I said earlier, financial assets are going to collapse. And then what I mean by financial assets is all financial assets. That's why asset allocation also will not protect you in this one unique season in your lifetime. Um, and we have deflation in prices, and that's what happened. Gold went up in the early stages of the 2008 crisis, saying, oh, goody, 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 banks are going to fail. There's trouble ahead. Yeah, we're, we're, the, we're, the, uh, you know, we're the hedge against all evil. And what happened is when the financial system started melting down, our money supply actually shrunk 6%. And that has not happened since like the 1930s or something. And that's why the government stepped in with such strong stimulus to stop that deleveraging. $4 trillion of private debt disappeared in four months. Imagine what would have happened if that process would have kept going. That's destroying money. When debt fails or is restructured, you're destroying money. When financial assets, when stocks are worth 16000 on the Dow one day and 6000 the next day, people just lost 60% plus of real tangible wealth or when their real estate goes down. Um, 
and it went down 34% uh, in the last tranche. Uh, people are losing real money, money they were expecting to retire on when they sold their house down the line or something or could borrow against it or get a reverse mortgage or whatever. So you're destroying money. That means there's less money chasing the same goods. That is the classic definition of deflation. So, so people don't understand what causes deflation. It is debt and financial asset bubbles bursting. You look back at history, every time we get a deflationary depression, it follows a bubble, the railroad bubble that peaked in 1872. Well, there was a five-year depression into 77 after that. You know, you had a bubble before that in land in the Midwest and canals and all this stuff, and it peaked in 1835. There was an eight-year depression and deflation after that, and of course, the most famous bubble that most people are aware of is the automobile, and it wasn't just an automobile bubble and a tech bubble, it was a farm bubble, a tractor bubble. Tons of banks failed when the Great Depression hit and, and a lot of debts failed. And it was more smaller banks lending to farmers against their farms and, and, and equipment that caused that big thing. So when debt deleverages, you get deflation. Gold is not looking for deflation. It's, it, gold is saying, and up until recently it was saying, governments are printing tons of money, goody, 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 we're going to get inflation. And then what happened, the reason gold finally fell out of bed, which we were warning people uh, for years that it was going to crash, it fell out of bed because the U.S. stepped up QE3 and QE3+, plus, and then Japan came over there and says, we will triple down and triple our stimulus. We'll call your bluff and come on. And, and gold saw that, and the next thing you know, inflation dropped from 2% to 1% in the U.S. It's like... Ooh, money printing doesn't create inflation. And we've been printing money unprecedented now for five years. That's plenty of time for the money to get in the system and magnify and cause inflation. It hasn't. That's why gold's been going down. It is bouncing now. My advice to the people who did not sell in late April of, of 2011, we said sell silver and gold because silver retested its 1980, and that was the last silver and gold bubble high. And we said this is the time to get out. Well, silver peaked right there at 48, 49 bucks that day, and gold peaked a little higher several months later in September. But for the people who didn't sell, and we know a lot of people won't sell gold because it's not just an investment; it's an emotional thing like real estate. We're saying sell on this bounce. We think gold's going to bounce a little higher, 1430, maybe 1480. I don't. I see a very low chance it's going to get back uh, <clears throat> above its breakout point when it broke below 1525. So if gold gets to 1430 a little higher, I'm saying sell. If you want to keep a little bit as a hedge, fine, but do not think it's going to do well. I'm projecting by 2016, gold will hit 700 bucks. And by 2020 to 23, when our clock-like commodity cycle roughly bottoms, it, it could hit its 98 to 2000 lows, 250 or maybe 400. So gold has a lot more downside potential from my view. And silver Silver in the late 70s and early 80s went from $5 to 50 bucks and back down to $5 two years later in the crash of the early 80s. And people think silver is safe. I'm like, this is the most volatile investment I've ever seen. <laughs> it's good in inflation. That's what it's good for. We're not in an inflationary period. So where does Harry put his money? It, well, okay. There's three things we recommend, and it depends on, on your risk tolerance. One is that you just simply get out-of-risk assets, which includes gold and silver, stocks, commodities, real estate that, that you're not absolutely wedded to for, for the 
the rest of your life or your business is not totally strategically tied to. Sell all these risk assets, build a big pile of cash, and just sit on it. Because when everything crashes, like Joseph Kennedy learned from the shoeshine boy in the early 30s, you're, you're going to buy stuff. You're going to buy your dream vacation home if you're an aging baby boomer on, on a beach somewhere for 60 70% off, maybe 80 if you're lucky. You can, you can buy stocks 60 70 80% off, as people have already been able to do in Japan and stuff. So that, that's number one. Just be safe. Sleep at night. Be in the safest stuff. Treasury bills, don't look for any yield. Any yield's going to kick, kick you. The second thing you can do, the true crisis hedge, which was already proven in 2008 and which we've been warning and nobody ever gets, is the U.S. dollar versus other currencies. The U.S. dollar index versus six major currencies in the world actually spiked up 27% in late 2008 when gold, silver, commodities, real estate, and stocks were all crashing. It went up. That was the safe haven. If you're destroying dollars from so much debt creation, there's fewer of them, which makes them more valuable. And all the gold bugs have been saying gold's going to go to 5000 plus and the U.S. dollar's going to crash to near zero. The opposite happened. In 2008, when the financial system melted down and we had debt deleveraging, which the government rapidly stopped, but while we had it, gold went down 33%, silver went down 50%. U.S. dollar went up 27%. So the second thing you can do for part of your portfolio, get in bullish bull dollar funds or an ETF like UUP that tracks the U.S. dollar index. It doesn't mean holding U.S. dollars because they don't appreciate it in your own currency because they are your own currency. It's, it, it's betting on the dollar going up versus other major currencies like the euro, the yen, uh, the Chinese yuan, um, you know, the Canadian dollar, and that sort of thing. The third thing you can do, and this is the riskiest, and so it should be a smaller part for, for most people, is you actually bet on risk assets like stocks, like gold, or real estate going down. You buy an inverse fund in a sector like, for example, if you, if you are betting on the S&P 500 going up, you can buy an ETF called SPY. It correlates very closely with the S&P 500. If you want to bet on the S&P 500 going down, and my forecast, by the way, is that the S&P is going to peak around 1900 to 1950 or so just ahead and then go down to like five to six hundred so it's a big drop you know dow 17,000 down to 6,000 roughly if you want to bet on stocks going down don't buy something leveraged don't get margin called or make it more risky just buy an inverse fund and for the s&p 500 that is called sh so somebody might a, a normal growth investor who takes a good deal of risk but not super aggressive might have you know, 40% of their money in cash, 30% in, in, in a bull dollar fund, and 30% short stocks. Talk to and you somebody who's close to retirement and, and wants to absolutely preserve the capital just might be in 100% T-bills until this crash goes down. And then you can buy stock, long-term investments, and, and even, you know, it, it, it rates where you have a chance of making a good return. There's no way to buy the Dow at 17000 What models predict today, very good models from the past, say that if you buy the Dow now at these high bubble-like valuations, just like if you'd have bought it in early 2000 or late 2007, you're, the, the range of returns you can expect over the next decade are from plus 1% to minus 3% a year. That doesn't sound good to me. What about uh, conservative life insurance companies? How do you think they're going to do? 
Okay, in the Great Depression, financial sectors get beat up the most, with banks failing and financial firms failing and you know financial assets going down and debt restructuring, all this sort of stuff. Life insurance companies were the part of the financial services industry that did well in the Great Depression. They make most of their investments in bonds to back their policies. Bonds were high-quality bonds high-quality corporate and government bonds were the one thing that, despite some volatility time, basically did well in the 30s. They didn't do great. They just did well. You could have made about 6% on high-quality corporate bonds while stocks and everything else was going down. So life insurance companies, their collateral didn't get compromised. And so they did well. Now, does that mean life insurance companies' stocks will go up if I'm right about the Dow going from 17000 to 6000 and then as little as two to three years? No, they won't because the price-earnings ratios on all companies goes down. Life insurance companies will do much better. And in companies like Procter & Gamble that sell internationally and sell basic consumer staples that people don't call uh, cut back up, they'll do better. But the price-earnings ratios on all stocks go down when investors see high-risk and difficult times. I look back at the Great Depression, and I said, God, there must have been some companies that went up, you know, big companies, you know, like you say, Procter & Gamble-like companies, or casinos, or cigarettes, or booze, or movies, or, or whatever, or candy bars. None of them did. It's just... A, a, a staple company like that or a lower volatile company might go down 40%, whereas a high-tech company might go down 80 or 90%. So it's better to be in those stocks, and it's better to be in high-dividend stocks because the dividends help make up for your losses, but it's better just to be out of stocks altogether. But if I had to be in stocks, yeah, life insurance companies would be a good good choice. And then especially if I thought, well, maybe Harry's right, but maybe he's not. Mm-hmm. Well, if I think that, then, you know, I may want to be in more conservative stocks and life insurance stocks and high dividend, you know, multinational staple like stocks would be a good place to be. I still think you're going to lose 50 percent. I work with whole life insurance companies that are extremely conservative and have been yeah. around for over 100 plus years. And during the Great Depression, uh, the Great Depression and the economic bust, they do very well because yes. money leads to safety. Exactly. Yeah, people will value insurance more yes. in difficult times. Oh my gosh, I, I, I don't even know if I'm going to have my job or my business is going to fail. Man, man, I had a hundred thousand life insurance. Maybe I need four hundred thousand, or my family's going to be really in trouble. So it's not about investing in the stock of the companies; it's positioning the money inside yes. of those companies with policies. Yes. That's what I work with, and that that's you know historically has done extremely well. And these companies are very, very safe because they have a very long term. Yes horizon for investing as opposed to, uh, you know, the short-term, you know, quarterly um, stock projections and trying to get shareholders to be happy on a quarterly basis or on a short-term basis. No, no, you're right. I mean, it's the only, just like in the 30s, it's the only sector of financial services that is not going to just, that is not a casino. Right. Every, I mean, investment banks, banks, um, all sorts, you know, brokerage, everybody is, is pooling up money, borrowing money to leverage it at, at near zero rates and speculating at 20, 30, 40, 50 times leverage. I mean, the, 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 imagine the bust. It's one thing to, to have stocks go down 50, 60, 70, 80 percent, which happens every summer and, and winter season, the off season. But imagine you're leveraged 30, 40, 50 to one, and that happens. You're right. Life insurance companies, by regulation and by their long-term view, they are, like you say, they're having to look 
at making payouts over decades, and life insurance actuaries are the closest people to what I do. They use demographics, proven demographics. They know when people are going to die decades and decades in advance, and they know depending on what age you are and this and that and that, whether your life expects to be long or not. These guys, they were the model for me. I just took it and said, okay, they can predict when people are going to die. I can predict when they're going to spend money from cradle to grave. It's the same principle. It's that actuarial thing. So they have sound, long-term, scientific ways of of predicting their cash flows, and they have sound, long-term investments to fund them. That's that's why they were they were the only sector that did well in the 30s, and the only sector that will do well in the decade ahead. I have people all the time saying, "Oh, I shouldn't buy annuities." I'm like, "No. Um, uh, first of all, taxes are going to go up." in a bad economy, just as they did in the 1930s. They went up unbelievably dramatically from 25% marginal rates to, I think, 70-something by World War II. Um, Taxes are going to go up, and if you can get tax protection and sound investing, then go for it. Talk to us about China and what's going on in China, because everyone thinks China is just positioned for a continued boom. Right, they're building all these cities. That, from what I've read, they're ghost towns. Uh, what, what's your opinion on China? Yeah, I, one of the things I do in addition to demographics and some long-term cycles is I study bubbles because because we're in the fall bubble boom, and and this bubble started to burst and it's burst in some areas and it will burst in more. So understanding bubbles is incredibly important, and people are incredibly stupid about bubbles. I mean, absolutely more stupid about bubbles than sex or anything else in life. I mean, we just don't see them when we're in a bubble. Everybody says, just like you said earlier, people say, well, this isn't a bubble because of this. Look, if it, if it looks like a bubble and quacks like a bubble, it's a bubble. The, the Dow is exactly tracing the bubble from late 94 to early 2000, and everybody's saying, well, this isn't a bubble. Um, everything's bubbling. China is the biggest bubble in the world, and the simple reason is it's a top-down economy driven by its top-down government. And the government is moving people at an accelerated rate faster than any country in history, too fast. It's natural for emerging countries. They all move people from rural to urban areas. But if you do it too fast, you disrupt cultures, you create bubbles, you create a massive underclass. They're doing this at light speed, and the government, the way they're doing it, they're moving people into rural areas, and they're giving them jobs, building building all types of infrastructures and condos and, and uh, bridges down. and roads for nobody. Right. How crazy is that? How could how could that be good? China, by my estimates, has overbuilt their industrial capacity, their infrastructures, and their housing for the next 10 to 15 years already, closer to 15 years. Why? And that's if they continue to migrate at the super fast speed they have in the last 10 to 12 years, which I think is absolutely unsustainable. So China's got the biggest bubble. Prices for Chinese condos in, in big cities like Beijing and Shanghai and Shenzhen are 28 to 35 times income. In San Francisco and L.A. and today in Vancouver and Sydney, Australia, 10 times income is what stops most bubbles. London's got 15. And People say that's not a bubble. So, but why? Why are they doing this, Harry? Because they want to grow and be a big boy, and they want to keep their popularity with the people. Because they're not elected, they're basically a mafia. But how does that make sense? How does it make sense? 
I, I mean, to me, it's just so simple. There's nobody living in these towns, and they keep building out more and more towns. Okay, well, there's two things. One thing people see, like like the 60-minute uh, uh, thing was great. Uh, they showed these ghost towns and stuff. There, there are cities built for a million, a number of them, with n- nobody in them or just maybe 2 3 4% occupancy. And, and you know what? Chinese investors buy these condos on speculation, and they don't worry that they're vacant. Now, what people don't see... A firm in China did an independent study of electricity use and found that in Chinese cities, on average, 27% of condos or homes are not are hooked up to electricity and not using any, which means they are vacant. So it's not just these ghost cities. Within major cities, especially the second and third tier cities, you have tons of vacancies. Real estate keeps going up because Chinese save 50% for the average person their income, 70% for the wealthiest who control the top 10% control 85% of the uh, 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 real estate investments and, and, and ownership in China. They invest massive amounts of money compared to us, and they put it all in real estate. They don't invest in stocks and bonds. It's not their culture, and their stock market has been the most volatile in the world. It went up six times in two years in the late 2007 and then crashed 70% and has barely bounced and is back near the lows. It's been a horrible market. So the Chinese love real estate. They buy it, and they're lining up to buy it, even with such vacancies. There's no way U.S. investors or European investors would buy real estate in any city in the United States that had 27% vacancy rates and rising and overbuilding to this level. So, so this whole thing's a bubble. The, the government encourages it. Their culture encourages it. It's going to burst, and it's going to burst bigger than any real estate bubble in the world. I show for just the bubble since early 2000, just the gains from early 2000 to be erased, which is what most bubbles do at the minimum, uh, real estate prices in places like Shanghai would have to fall 85%. Now, think about this, Teresa. The richest people in China, 10%. Who control most of this real estate that has gone up six to seven times, not just doubled or tripled like the most other countries? And this real estate starts collapsing, and their wealth collapses at the speed of light. Are they going to keep buying real estate in all these cities in, in, in California and Australia and Singapore and London, which they're the ones keeping all these final bubbles going? Yeah, are they going to cut back their spending? They're 60% of the income in all of China, just 10%, and at least 50% of the spending. These people pull back and/or flee the country, and they're already starting to flee the country. China's economy is dead, and no amount of quantitative easing BS is going to be able to cure that, and no amount of quantitative easing here or in Europe is going to be able to offset the tsunami that happens when the second largest and fastest growing economy in the world collapses. And that's what I see. It's just going to burst like nothing we've seen because nobody's created this bigger bubble. China created a bigger bubble than we did, and they, they had a huge burst. The Southeast Asian countries created a bubble in the 90s, and it burst because the governments did the same thing. They overbuilt and overspeculated and did all this stuff. Well, China makes them look like sissies. They're not even in the ballpark of what China has done. So this, will, this bubble will burst. I don't know if it's going to be a little sooner or later. I, I'm seeing the cracks. There, there are a lot of uh, real estate firms, uh, developers folding there. Uh, bonds are starting to default. Um, I think China's going to blow up this year. And when it does, inc- that, that's when the Fed and central banks just can't create more money and solve it. You can't solve that problem. Harry, your latest book, The Demographic Cliff? Yes. We're going to post a link on Living Wealthy Radio to uh, that book. 
tell our listeners where else they can uh, read about your predictions and your forecasts? Yeah, um, we also have, we have a free newsletter uh, called Survive and Prosper. All you do is go to harrydent.com and put in your email, and it's a daily newsletter, high content. It's a way to get to know us, because I am saying things very different from most economists, and you need to get, you know, the, the book will help you understand in depth. This newsletter will give you small bites and educate you why we think differently. And it's a great newsletter, and it's free. Uh, we also have... Uh, there was a whole chapter on China. I had to rush to get this book out because of the urgency. And there was a chapter that got in the Asian books but did not get in the U.S. book called The Great China Disaster. Uh, you can get that at harrydent.com slash unpublished. Excellent. And we will also post those links on Living Wealthy Radio. Thank you so much for this fast-moving conversation. You are just so interesting to talk with. And you know what? The good news is by knowing what the future holds, you can be prepared to survive and even thrive during the next economic downturn. And reading Harry Dent's information can help you prepare. This is Teresa Kuhn with Living Wealthy Radio. Wealthy Radio on Talk 1370 and streaming live at Talk1370.com. I'm Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. Educational and informational purposes only. The info being presented does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation and does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax advisor or legal counsel or other professional. And you should not use the information in place of a personal consultation regarding your specific situation or needs prior to taking any action based on this information. We believe the info provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.